Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Hey, everybody. Thanks for coming around and inviting me into your home this week so I can answer some questions for you. I think we have some pretty good questions, and we're going to get right to it. I just wanted to uh, put a quick plug in for the podcast this week. I did an interview with Aaron Smith-Levin. Uh, finally, because <laughs> he announced a couple weeks ago that he is um, running for city council. And of course, Aaron and I have done a lot of shows and we have had a build up to this. And this interview was done in support of his campaign and to uh, let people know where he's coming from in the campaign and what's going on with it. So we had a nice um, uh, chat about all of that. So I hope you guys will check that out. And of course, our Critical Conversation show on Friday nights. Um, this, uh, this next week, we will not have one of the critical conversation shows, um, because my wife and I are out of town this week, but, um, that will normally resume every Friday night, um, at six o'clock Denver mountain standard time, uh, every Friday night. Okay. So you guys can check out those shows as well. All right. With all that being said, let's get on with your questions. Oscar Hugh Zilch. I think there's a widespread perception of the 70s as being the golden age of cults, at least in the United States and Western Europe. The danger of this perception is that the public and even experts who should know better can have trouble identifying new destructive cults that superficially don't resemble Scientology, the Moonies, Children of God, etc. Setting that very real problem aside, do you think there is any truth to the idea that the 70s were a time in which destructive cults thrived? Okay, Oscar, thank you very much for this question, and it is a good one. Um, I think what we're really seeing in terms of the 70s being some kind of perceived as the golden age of cults is really, it's not that. And in terms of objective reality, the 70s weren't any more of a time period of, of cults than the 60s, 50s, 40s. It's, it, people didn't change. What changed was the awareness about cults. The information, the public discourse, right, the conversations about cults started picking up in earnest after the research was done on it. Um, you have in the 1950s this concept start coming out into the public eye about brainwashing. Uh, this came out of the Korean War. This came out of communist China, the revolution there. And um, the fact that re-education was being done and soldiers were being um, put on display, uh, enemy soldiers, right, were being put on display. In other words, us and other Western nation people um, on video denouncing the Western values, denouncing, you know, the Western countries. And, uh, and these soldiers were a little scary. They were like, wow, what's that all about? Well, it was the result of uh, thought reform, right, of re-education. And uh, this is forceful. This is forcefully done. They use um, a, a great deal of, of energy and, um, and punishment and threat and, and all kinds of stuff in order to get people into that state of mind. And um, that was studied. And this is what Robert J. Lifton's work was all about, um, you know, the psychology of, of totalism and thought reform and how does this stuff work? How do you get people to do that? And what happens to them over time? Because, yeah, they you can get you can capture a soldier as a prisoner of war. You can interrogate them. You can work them over for months 
um, sometimes years um, in an environment where their minds are being worked on, not just their bodies. You know, through you know, you, know, you torture them, or you or you deny them basic necessities, or you, or on the other hand, you do other psych operations on them in order to uh, where you know you can kind of be kind to them for periods of time or seemingly so you know there's a whole there's a whole sort of of setup to it as to how you do it and this is what what Lifton was was writing about and um and it's not permanent you know these are not permanent changes and over time as these people were reintroduced into you know western environments or different environments or back to where they came from they started reacclimating and losing the mind thought reform and all of that so this isn't like something that, you know, you you have switches in people's heads that you're turning on and off. It's not quite that simple. But people freaked out about this because um, it looked like it was uh, possible to turn switches in people's heads. And this is where the whole concept of brainwashing comes in. And the Manchurian candidate as a concept, uh, you know, comes out as this like idea that you could... You could brainwash somebody to go assassinate a, a political leader or, you know, go do some, stir up some trouble, become an agent provocateur of some kind. And this was a very real and very um, uh, scary proposition for, for Americans, for the Western nations, for people who didn't understand how this was done, what this was all about. So it starts getting studied. And when they're studying this, they start finding out how it really works and how this all operates. Books get written, journalists and media uh, personnel start looking at this, science communicators start talking about it, and it becomes articles in Time and Life and Newsweek and you know this kind of thing and gets, it gets featured on TV. Movies get made like The Manchurian Candidate and this kind of stuff. And this is what raises awareness in the public eye, and then people start becoming aware of this threat or this danger to varying degrees. They don't all go read Lifton. They don't all go study up on it, so they only hear little bits and pieces and dribs and drabs of, of the total picture, and they start inventing their own ideas about what this all means. And then this starts getting connected, this whole thought reform thing starts getting connected to... Uh, in the 1960s, major uh, incidents of disruption in the public safety. Um, Robert Kennedy's assassination by Sirhan Sirhan, and he's claiming mind control. Um, the Manson family murders, mind control, cults, right? These words start coming and being utilized in connection with these very dramatic, very sensational stories, and the public start getting alarmed, and oh my God, and now we have a cult problem, and now the media starts taking this more seriously after 20, you know, 15, 20 years of research and, and talking about and looking at it, and um, and so we have this incredible raised awareness about high control groups, um, authoritarian groups, culty groups that are using sex, that are using money, that are using power 
in you know unequal non not well distributed ways so that you know the people at the top are taking advantage of all the people in the group and we call these things destructive cults and sociologists and uh, psychologists start really digging into the anatomy of what these groups are about and how they operate how they form how they continue how they fall apart all of this stuff starts being really heavily researched, at least as far as I can tell from all the literature I have read and studied, um, really starts going to town. People start going to town on this in the 1970s, start taking it much more seriously. This is also when we see religious scholars and sociologists start diving into this field as well. And so the 1970s is a very interesting and controversial time in trying to figure out, define, you know, lay out the path of what are these things? What are these groups? Who are these charismatic leaders? How do they take charge? What is this all about? So, so once it starts really being, um, once the public is generally aware of this, now it looks like we have a cult problem all of a sudden. Well, the fact is cults existed in the 40s, in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s. But when you're talking all about it and making news stories all about it, it looks like it's suddenly a thing that didn't exist before because nobody was really talking about it before. That doesn't mean it didn't exist before. Same thing as autism. <laughs> Same thing as, you know, sexually transmitted diseases. Same as all kinds of stuff that doesn't get into the public discourse, and then it does, and then suddenly everybody's like, whoa, what's all this about? And people are electrified and think it's very sensational and get very excited about all of it, um, even though the problem has actually existed for a very, very, very long time. So I think what we're, I think basically what I'm saying here is that this is a matter of perception more so than reality that the 1970s was some kind of golden age of cults. Really, it's just a matter of, it was 1970s was more of America waking up to the fact that cults exist and that they have uh, a, a real threat value, that they do things to people that are, that are not good. But it's not like in the 1920s or the 1910s, there weren't charismatic leaders gathering people around them and convincing them of some pretty ridiculous things in order to control them, take money from them, get sex from them, you know, use power in, in you know, sort of unequal and uh, badly distributed way, right, where the leader has all the power and the followers kind of don't. And um, this, is, this is old school stuff. It's been around forever. Right, that people have been doing this to each other. So, um, I mean, we see all kinds of occult groups rise up in the early 1900s, for example, including Christian Science, uh, which wasn't a cult, but you know, kind of a culty sort of thing. Um, Aleister Crowley was was living large in the early 1900s. That's when he came into um, prominence, and uh, and lots of other lots and lots of other groups. So, um, the word cult, in fact, comes out of the 1920s when Christian fundamentalism as a movement was growing in response to all the paranormal interest and occult interest and spiritualism of the late 1800s and early 1900s. So even the word cult goes back quite a ways uh, in, its, in its current pejorative sort of, you know, weird group kind of uh, usage, okay? Prior to that, no, nobody used the word cult. Uh, it was they, they, they talked about these groups in different ways or other ways. So 
Um, so this whole kind of concept of a high control authoritarian, you know, thought reform movement um, and calling it a cult is a is a is is a thing that came out of the 1900s, and we're still struggling with it now in terms of trying to define the word or use the word effectively. Now we have a whole swath of academics and and researchers who who don't even want to use the word, don't want to go anywhere near it because it's been so contentious and because it riles people up in some pretty uncomfortable ways sometimes. You start throwing the word cult around for groups that are not destructive, that are not trying to harm people or where the leader is is benign. And that's a misuse of the term. And that gets ha that happens all the time because public people at large, right, don't understand it or don't totally fully understand it. Or they get, you know, like people will do, they will take these terms out of psychology and psychiatry, and they will misuse them up one side and down the other for as personal insults and thinking that they know what they're talking about when they don't. And, you know, I'm talking about like words like narcissism and and uh, schizophrenia and all kinds of words that have been bandied about over the years that, um, that get misused. And cult is no different than that. It's been misused plenty of times. I've probably misused it plenty of times. It's, it's, it's a word that is contentious. So, um, so anyway, this is where I go with this is that I, I think that the 1970s was, was the golden age of finding out about cults. And that might be a more accurate way of putting that. And um, anyway, I think, I've, I, I think that answers the question. And thank you very much for asking. Juan Amigo, I have been pondering a certain point from your latest show with Cyprian that there are some academics slash sociologists who seem rather dismissive of the concept of cults. I find this disgusting, but truly fascinating. I think the field of sociology is important and valid, but I also think it might be somewhat limited and possibly flawed. One simple analogy is this. At its worst, sociology is like studying schools of fish without sufficient focus on what an individual fish actually is. Another thing is there's arguably more than one renowned sociologist out there who seems to use a touch of coercive persuasion in their best-selling books. As you say, context is everything, and I admit to having a rather extreme personal aversion to being controlled, but might there be something in the field of applied sociology which makes it susceptible to things such as double binds? Like, if you want to apply sociological knowledge to changing society, certain tactics might seem necessary? Okay, Juan, thank you very much for this question. Um, so sociology, critique of. Um, I have been dealing with psychology, sociology, neuroscience, um, anthropology, ethnography. I mean, a few different fields over the years looking into and talking about high control groups or destructive cults. And sociology is a very important field uh, for certain principles or certain framing of how we deal with groups of people at once. Because it's very, very interesting how sociology is a very necessary field. Um, psychology and sociology complement one another in the best of times. They can contradict one another in certain areas, I believe, but I haven't really found that to be true very much in terms of the actual raw fields. How people use or implement sociology or psychology can be, you know, troublesome, problematic, difficult, or even just wrongheaded. 
And so some sociologists come off as kind of ridiculous sometimes in what they say. So do some psychologists. And so does anybody else. I, I don't think just because individual people, and I don't know if you're saying this, but I'm responding to your question as written. So I don't know if, if you know, some sociologists get it so wrong or seem to say things that sound so ridiculous that it seems to invalidate the entire field. But I wouldn't really want to do that or go there. I think sociology is a very important science and something that needs a lot more research. Excuse me. So... Um, so I think, I think more, not less sociology is the answer as far as that goes, but you're making interesting points. And let me, let me say how, at least as far as how I look at it, that, um, where sociology, um, is, it's about groups and, and looking at the phenomena or activity of, of numbers of people at a time. And it's very, very, very interesting how numbers of people will act sometimes incredibly differently than you would think they would uh, when you look at individuals. And this comes down to the, the, the simple saying, I think, from the Men in Black movie that, you know, in, individuals are smart, people are stupid. <laughs> you know, collectively, when we start acting together, we... The, the, the intelligence level of the group that we form tends to be kind of dumb compared to individuals in the group who can stop and, so from their point of view, sort of assess what the group is doing, what's going on. You know, this is where we, we come home and bitch about what's going on at work that day. You know, these guys, this boss, these guys don't have this organized right. They dot, dot, dot. Well, from our point of view, we have good points and we're saying right things. But if you step back, you might see that your lone viewpoint in the group doesn't consider all these other situations or positions or propositions or problems. And so you think you've got it all nailed. But then when you get to the leadership role, you find out there's a lot more going on than you ever imagined happening. And so it's not necessarily that the group is that off the rails, but from your point of view, with your limited amount of knowledge, you thought it was, and then you find out the bigger picture problems and you go, oh, I didn't know. And that's pretty, that's more, I believe, that's the usual typical situation with human beings is that from their vantage point in a group, they have a limited number of, of, of data points, a limited number of, of, of uh, things they can know about the group. And so from their perspective, they judge how smart or stupid the leadership is based on what they see. And of course they would. Why would it be any different? How would you be able to think any other way? You can't know what you don't know. I, my my take as a critical thinker is that you can't know what you don't know, but you can always at least leave the possibility or leave the potential open that there are things you don't know. And so keep your judgments a little more reserved, a little bit more open to the possibility that you might be wrong or there might be more things to consider. And so don't go, you know, all in on some on some criticism or some perspective without stopping and getting more information, more data from 
more people, more perspectives. I think that's the, you know, the rational way to go about problem solving in a group. And, um, and generally speaking, that's how when when problems are solved, that's how it's done. Um, Knowing that, knowing how groups operate, knowing how the individual relates to the group, that's all sociology. Everything I'm sitting here talking about and describing in terms of the problems that we experience at work, the problems we experience in clubs and groups and things like that, that's sociology. So, uh, so it is a very, very valuable field when you're talking about how that individual deals with the problems he encounters from the group, how he relates to other individuals in the group, how he responds and reacts or she deals with the problems and stresses and trauma of, that are provided by the group or put on them by the group. That's psychology. That's when you're dealing with the individual as an individual. But the individual as a group member and how the group operates and all of that. See, this is where these two fields mesh and why it's so important that sociologists and psychologists be talking to each other, especially when it comes to contentious group situations like cults. So this is why I'm always pushing for interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary approaches to problems like, like uh, Scientology. So... Um, in terms of sociologists using coercive persuasion in their books or, or something like that, um, you know, you're going to run into every single problem with, with people that you run into uh, in sociology. Sociologists aren't immune to any of those, to ego, in other words, right? To arrogance, to conceit, to the desire to have other people want to like their work. Uh, to you know all the all the things that uh, that individuals have, including our conceit and, and all that, sociologists have all that too. <laughs> you know, so so you might run into the odd sociologist who seems to be you know saying some pretty off the wall stuff or writing things that don't really. Nah, I don't know about that. Fair enough. You know, this is why we have a, a a big broad field with a lot of peer review and a lot of work that gets done, and even then. Even despite all the scientific method and peer review process that we have, we still have fads enter into science and take over for a while. And, you know, they sort of go this way and that way and pendulums swing back and forth and in the flavor of the month or flavor of the year for what's popular and in the science for that time period. You know, in other words, um, Science as a group of people isn't any different from any other group of people. Some folks rise to the top and become popular. Others don't. There's drama. There's, you know, the rise and fall of, of, of individuals and their influence. Same, same, same as any other group. And, and we see that in the sciences as much as we do anywhere else. Again, we know that because sociologists study it. <laughs> <laughs> you see, so the science is even capable of, of self-critique and, and self-correction to a degree by studying itself. Kind of fun, kind of interesting. So I don't know. So that's kind of how I see sociology or can respond to this question about, you know, well, let's critique sociology for a bit. Now, I've, I'm, 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 I hope I'm not missing anything here. As far as, um, you know, dismissive of the concept of cults. This is most prominent from my experience in the field of religious studies, actually. And, and I talked about sociologists as well, because there are sociologists who get on this new religious movements train. 
And this is a this is a uh, this is part of the cult wars. There have been um, for decades now since the since the seventies. There have been academics in sociology, psychology, religious studies, and other disciplines um, who have taken very opposite positions on the goodness, badness, rightness, wrongness, uh, utility, or or threat of religious groups, groups that are based in religious spiritual ideas, um, and there are uh, there is a whole lot of these religious scholars and um, and some sociologists who look at these new these so-called new religious movements, which you and I would call a destructive cult, they call it a new religious movement. And they believe that any group has the right to believe what it wants and to practice what it wants, uh, you know, carry out those beliefs. As long as they're not killing people, what's the problem? And even if they are killing people, wow, that's interesting. Let's study that. I mean, from the study, from the academic point of view, it's legit that you have to have some objectivity. You, you, you can't just throw yourself emotionally and get emotionally invested in the subject matter that you're studying and expect to be able to produce objective results. And that's what science is for and that's what it's about. So you're always going to want people to look at these things with a certain degree of, 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 uh, of objectivity, right, and not get all emotionally invested. That is impossible for somebody like me, former cult members, right? We apostates, as they like to call us, uh, are completely biased about the groups we were part of. That's a given, there's no way around that, and um, and it's always going to be that way. I can't ever speak from a truly unbiased position about the subject of Scientology. I think the reasons for that are obvious. Um, in the same way, though, some people enter into religious studies or into sociology with a preset mindset about new religious movements or, you know, their opinion or their take on cults. And their idea is that that's not what these groups are, that that's not what this is about. And their mission, their struggle, their fight is for religious freedom. They're all about First Amendment or freedom of belief, freedom of, to practice what you believe. And we need people who are going to be champions and guardians of that position because religious freedom is something that a whole lot of authoritarians and a whole lot of very ignorant people want to take away from, uh, you know, societies, from people. They don't want people to be able to practice whatever religion they want. They want to oppress people. They want to be authoritarians. And this class of sociologists and religious studies folks would be the ones pushing back against that. And to that degree, they're doing a good work. And we want that work being done. We want people who are on a mission to push for and, and defend religious freedom. What we don't want is um, an, an unnuanced look at that, right? We need to know that there are legit religious groups that are not harmful or destructive to their followers. People can go in, study, talk, have community, do their worship, go home, you know, maybe throw a little money in the pot or not. It's up to them. 
you know, work with the group, make friends, have, you know, have a, have a community. Those are all net positives. We don't have a problem with those kind of groups. Obviously, we have a problem when, you know, you enter into a group that says it's one of those groups, like Scientology, but then in the process of your membership, financially, emotionally, and maybe even physically, you know, assaults and rapes you and uh, leaves you, you know, uh, penniless and emotionally distraught and stressed out and traumatized and then kicks you out or, you know, you escape and get away uh, before more destruction could have happened and then live to tell your tale, right? These groups like Scientology need to be fought against because they are not about religious freedom. They are about authoritarianism and they are about control. The religious studies people and the sociologists who are all about religious freedom and freedom of belief, they don't look at these groups through that lens. They don't look at Scientology through a lens of a destructive cult. They look at it as another form of a new religious movement. And in fact, a, one of the newest ones and one of the more interesting ones because it's still a live, living religion that is growing right in front of your eyes. Um, they want to study that. They want to know all about that. They want to look into that. Um, and they might not necessarily know a whole lot. And I'm being generous here when I say they might not know about psychology, thought reform, right? Lifton, Hassan, Singer, Lalich. They don't, they, they don't pay attention to those scholars. They don't read about the bite model. They don't read about Lifton and, and thought reform. So they don't really think about or, or look at these groups that way. And so they miss, they miss really great, big, obvious facts about these groups, like the fact that L. Ron Hubbard was a pathological liar and megalomaniac. And that might make him a religious leader in their eyes, but they should temper that religious leadership with the fact that he was intending and carried out purposefully a con. So is a religion that is a con actually a religion? Now, that's an interesting research question and one that could be and should be researched very thoroughly by these people. But they don't do that because they refuse to consider that a religion can be a con. They don't even want to go there. They don't want to think about that. That somehow, that concept or idea somehow smacks up against their idea of how the world works and how things should be and how these new religious movements should be granted all kinds of credibility and legitimacy. And, um, and that's where we have a parting of the ways, and that is where the cult wars have been being fought is on these kind of ideas. So um, this has been going on for decades. It will continue to go on because uh, we have very entrenched camps in academia now about these things. There are pro-Scientology uh, academics and there are anti-Scientology academics. And, and I'm you know, using this as a broad class. In other words, they're pro-cult and anti-cult. And, and, and it seems to me that the number who are anti-cult are less than the number who are pro-cult. And so we've had this, this struggle and this has, been, um, this has been a big problem for a long time for uh, trying to move the ball forward in studying groups like Scientology with an eye towards 
you know, delegitimizing them and 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 classifying them as something not beneficial, not useful. They don't have utility. Um, this has been very, very difficult, very difficult. So especially because, of course, over the years, Scientology, the Moonies, the JWs, they, I mean, I don't know about the JWs actually, but certainly the Moonies and Scientology and many other groups have actually paid academics to write features and um, essays and articles and journal uh, entries that are pro-cult. Right. That hey, the Moonies are great. Moonies are all right. I don't see any evidence of thought reform here. I lived amongst the Scientologists for a while and I didn't see any problems. So there is no problem. Well, I, I think that statement in itself kind of shows pretty clearly what the problem is. Because, <laughs> right? um, you know, because when an academic gets wined and dined by Scientology, they are not being shown the RPF. They are not being shown the whole. They are not being shown, you know, the rigorous, torturous um, activities that go on there, uh, or they're given some, you know, airy fairy explanation for something like the RPF and they buy it because they have a pro cult bias. So that's where we run into trouble with the sociologists and the religious studies folks in this, in the field of studying cults. And I don't know, maybe this is more than what you were asking for in your question, but this is my, you know, this is my, uh, my address to this whole issue. I've um, I, I've uh, written a piece for the Underground Bunker that should be published soon uh, there about this exact thing, and you'll be seeing some more critiques from me about academia in the coming weeks uh, from this uh, on the bunk on the Underground Bunker blog uh, uh, from this whole idea that I'm talking about right now. So this has been kind of on my mind lately. So that's maybe one of the reasons I took this question up also. Anyway, so um, so there you go. I hope that this was um, illuminating in some fashion as to what's going on behind the scenes in the world of academia with cults. So there you go. Barney Saunders. You said previously that Hubbard liked to control people, whereas Trump likes to control situations. Can you go into more detail about that? How and why? Okay, Barney, thank you for this question. I, I am still um, not remembering the context in which I actually said that. I think this was years ago in some podcast. But, um, but I think that this is in regards to the cult leader-follower relationship in that I, I believe L. Ron Hubbard— as a megalomaniacal sort of, you know, power hungry, love to con people, love to mess with people kind of guy. And Hubbard did. Hubbard definitely, he said, he said some things in a few lectures over the years that indicate to me in hindsight that he kind of had a thing about screwing with people and sort of just seeing what would happen. Let's try doing this. Let's try doing that. Let's mess with this guy and see what happens. Let's try, let's, let's do this over here. And, you know, almost almost whimsical attitude about it. You know, oh, let's see what happens if I give this guy five times as much, um, you know, uh, uh, medication as he should have. I, I'm, I was, there was, there was uh, experimentation being done in the early 50s in Scientology with drugs and medications and stuff and seeing whether that affected auditing. And Hubbard was getting people high, basically, and auditing them. And um, I, I was just trying to remember the name of that drug, and I forgot, diazepam or something like that. Anyway, um, Hubbard was a guy who was interested in people and messing with people. And um, I think that was sort of his thing. That's that's one of the things I get from L. Ron Hubbard. 
and his writings and lectures and stuff is he was just into manipulation as a, a hobby, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And he got really good at it. And he was um, he was uh, a philanderer, you know. He was he was into manipulating people sexually, intellectually through Dianetics, through Scientology, financially, of course, all of this because Hubbard was getting money from people all over the place, rarely paying. He was one of those guys that would borrow the money and not pay it back, and that was Hubbard. And then, of course, he he starts Dynamics and Scientology. He's got so much money coming out of his ears that he doesn't even know what to do with it all. But he still manages to go bankrupt anyway. That's Hubbard. So, um, so I think he really dug controlling people. Um, and he seemed to go, you know, he seemed to be a bit bipolar in terms of whether he liked people or not. He seemed to have, you know, uh, at least praised them, talked about them in glowing terms, you know, was always lifting people up in some fashion, just so a couple of days later he could cut them off at the knees, knock them down, and watch them fall. You know, or blame them. You know, he was into the same thing Miscavige does, where he'd lift people up to his level, his his position of power, his inner circle, and then generally groom them to be scapegoats, so that when he screwed up in some significant and spectacular fashion, he's got somebody to blame for that. That's Miscavige, that's Hubbard, it, it just routinely. That's just a habit they had uh, as leaders, as cult leaders. Trump certainly doesn't have a problem scapegoating people, but Trump is more, I don't see Trump as somebody who, who enjoys or tries to mess with people just to mess with them. I see Trump as somebody who is bigger, who is into the sales and the and the the art of the deal sort of thing, right? I, I don't take that book seriously. What I mean is he's into the showmanship of his positions, and he's into being noticed and recognized by as many people as he can at any time, TV, radio, news, whatever. As long as his name is out there, and as long as people are saying it and preferably chanting it. Um, the better, the more, the more in charge he feels, the more secure he feels. Because what Hubbard and Trump both share is a psychological problem of, of a level of self-doubt and, and self-loathing even that is so strong, it's actually hard for you and I to imagine. It's really, really powerful. It's, it's sort of at the core of who they are, is they are people who really don't like themselves very much. And consider that they are not all that. And that's kind of apparently at the root of narcissism is this fear and uncertainty and cr almost crippling levels of, um, of self-loathing and self-doubt. And so to compensate for that, to, to, to deal with that core problem that they have at a very basic level of their identity or personality, they overcompensate by talking about themselves, lying about themselves as a routine matter of course, and using those lies and using that bluster and that, that sort of con attitude, that con man attitude to control and 
you know, dictate to other people what they need to do and how they need to service the the megalomaniac, the Hubbard or the Trump, um, in order to in order so that they can feel better about themselves can feel like they are not scum of the earth, horrible, awful people that they kind of know they are because they engage in activities that are criminal in nature that are uh, outright wrong on any moral compass, whether it's sexual assault, whether it's uh, financial um, irregularities, you could say, financial crimes, right, embezzlement, um, et cetera. Uh, bribery, you know, these kind of things. I mean, this is this is the this is the bread and butter of Trump's empire is criminal financial irregularities, and um, and of course overt manipulation of whoever needs to be manipulated, so that for Trump, for example, he's in charge, he's in control, and he's validated and acknowledged as the great leader or the great businessman or the great dealer or you know the great entrepreneur, that he needs to hear that from people in order to continue living a life where he feels like he has some worth. That's that's the headspace of, of a narcissist and a megalomaniac. And, and they accumulate this power to them as a, as a defense mechanism, as a buffer from, from the, the, the threatening world around them that is trying to do them in all the time. Everything is taken personally. Everybody who slights them in any way is an enemy who must be destroyed at once because that person is saying out loud stuff that Trump is already thinking in his head and cannot live with, cannot accept, is, is you know, there's this whole, whole denial thing going on too. Like they know how screwed up they are, and then they deny how screwed up they are, and then they build this layer cake of, of ego on top of that. And that's your narcissist, as I understand it. Hubbard, Trump, lots and lots of, of things in common there. But whereas Hubbard had a knack for or a bent towards manipulating individuals and forming groups, but but he was not really that great of a leader or manager or organizer, and he didn't really deal well with groups. He really was bad at it. This is why Mary Sue and other people had to be in his orbit who could deal with this and could sort things out better than he could. Because he, he, he Hubbard's true nature in terms of running groups, running activities was shown in, the, in 1950 when he got success in 1951, 1952. All that time period, Hubbard blew it over and over again, and he really showed, he really displayed to the entire world that he has no organizational or business sense, and he needed other people to help him out with that. Trump, I, I don't know the deal with his business sense, but I think it's a little bit better than Hubbard's was because he was raised in an environment, Trump was, where business and the deal and real estate and all this kind of stuff was much more prominent in his life growing up as a kid. And he grew up in a monster factory, of course. I mean, his his home life was absolutely horrible. I mean, you wouldn't want to want to have any child grow up in that household. It was absolutely torture for him. And so he turned out the way that he turned out. And I'm I'm not saying it's a complete nurture argument with Trump. There might be nature there too in terms of his genetic 
um, problems or issues. I, I can't really say one way or the other. What we can judge is the behavior, and the behavior is clear that it's megalomaniacal, and it's very, 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 very egotistical. But it seems to be, for me, that Trump is more about controlling large swaths of population and business deals and big projects, and, and, and that's kind of his thing. Hubbard was more was more fine-tuned. And I think it was, I think, you know, if I was going to say, uh, I think it's just, a, I think it comes down to maybe the word proclivity or, or impulse or, or, or interest. Like where, what is it about Hubbard that makes him different from Trump? Is, is he, he just liked messing with people. I guess that's really the best way I can, I can say it. And I hope it's coming across well. I hope I'm communicating, but that's, um, that's those. That's the whole thought process behind that. Those statements, as I remember them, and I hope that this helped clarify, you know, my my take at least on on uh, on Hubbard and Trump. David Brown, I saw your Q and A about COVID vaccinations and whether people should be forced to take them. I lean toward individualism myself, but I basically agree with you on the justifiability of forcibly quarantining patient zero. So I wanted to ask you about something in a similar vein that I've found disturbing for some time. There seems to be in the West today an attitude by some people that a single individual takes priority over the entire rest of the world. And in my own experience, this seems more ascendant on parts of the left. From people who justify no platforming and banning speakers because someone who can't bear the thought of that person even being in the city to the people who routinely slander military intervention against groups like ISIL as, quote-unquote, bombing children, and by extension seem to say, whether they will admit it or not, that mass killings by groups such as ISIL are okay compared to the stopping of such killings at the cost of some inadvertent civilian casualties. What I think disturbed me most about this as a child was during an episode of the kid-friendly Doctor Who spinoff, the Sarah Jane Adventures. At the end of the episode, an alien is about to destabilize satellites around the Earth and cause them to crash directly into nuclear power plants, effectively ending the world as we know it. But the main protagonist reaches the console that can stop it before the alien does. In response, one of her companions is held at gunpoint with the warning that they will be killed if she presses the buttons to stop the satellite crash. Despite the urging of a third companion to press it anyway, she refuses, saying, and I quote, One life is as sacred as the entire planet. The situation is essentially resolved by deuce ex machina, if I remember correctly. What disturbed me at the time, when I was about 13, I think, and still does today, is that you literally had the titular character be prepared to see billions of people die just so she doesn't feel responsible for one death. She wouldn't even have been directly killing anyone. It seems clear that this view is being glorified or at least promoted, and to young children at that, or else why would the main character, who never apologizes or seems to change her mind subsequently, be the mouthpiece for it? I'm interested to know if you think there's something to this. Do you think that these kinds of views are being promoted, glorified, or are otherwise working their way into popular discourse? And if not, what do you think are the forces holding them at bay? Hi, David. Thank you for this question. Um, I, I know you asked, I've, I've taken my time getting to this one, but um, I wanted to think about it a little bit. <laughs> 
And actually, um, I have done a lot of reading. Um, I think what we're talking about here, and actually this might surprise you, but I think what we're talking about here is the very slow shift, cultural shift that we've been seeing happen since the Enlightenment started. I mean, the Reformation and the Enlightenment and the change in the individual versus the group. And this is a, I guess you could say a spectrum where all individual, all group, right? At, at both ends, polar opposites of the spectrum of consideration as to what is or isn't important. Should the individual be sacrificed for the group? Should the group be sacrificed for the individual? What, what's, the, what's the axiomatic statement here? Well, according to Spock, the um, needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. And this is you know, the standard Star Trek genre, right? And I think Wrath of Khan actually demonstrated this principle in action in one of the most, um, you know, impactful and emotional ways possible because, of course, Spock sacrifices himself at the end of Wrath of Khan. Spoiler <laughs> from a movie from 1982, um, so that the crew can live, right? And that very clearly demonstrates the exact opposite of the principle that you're talking about that was put forward in the Doctor Who spinoff. So we have this sort of push pull between these two poles uh, going on in society. And I think that this question has been taken up by philosophers, by um, psychologists, and of course, sociologists, and lots and lots of people have, you know, various degrees of interest in this, in this question, this philosophical point. And I, I take it back to the Enlightenment, because this is the period of time when really deep, serious thinkers really started thinking very heavily and writing very well um, about, and very cleverly about, Excuse me, concepts like freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of belief. Maybe I don't want to believe this. Maybe I, maybe I got some other ideas. How does that fit into the bigger picture? Do I have the right to think the way I want to think? Or am I supposed to, as a member of the society or social system, am I supposed to curb my thinking and to conform with the group? This is a question we all have to ask ourselves over and over again in life as we are confronted by the problems of living in a group. Do we want to comply with these rules? Do we want to follow these morals? Do we want to change our mind to respond to what the group wants from us? Whether that group is our job, a hobby club, a martial arts dojo, your church, or the society that you live in overall. And the larger the group becomes, of course, the less clear it is what the group's about, what it wants from us, how we're supposed to interact with it. And this is why we kind of pull the reins back in and, and represent groups by individuals or slogans or symbols or ideas that we can kind of get our, our wits around and hold on to those as our idea of what the group is rather than trying to confront the entire group. I don't know about you, but the last time I tried to consult the entire United States of America on a decision, it didn't work out so well, right? I have no means to do that. So I can only talk to so many people at once or, or, or be aware of what so many people want from me at once. And this is another factor in the problem of how the individuals and the groups get along with each other. Uh, there's, there, this, is, this is Sociology 101. It's fascinating stuff, and there's tons and tons of things to know about it. 
Uh, but as far as the rights questions you're talking about here and this idea that, um, you know, that somehow in popular discourse, there's been this motion away from the good of the group and toward the good of the individual over the group. Well, I'm just trying to point out that this is a counter reaction to centuries, centuries of history where the individual wasn't anything really special and the group was kind of everything in many, many ways. And and this was really kind of lived more through the ca- a, a caste system or social orders or, or, or hierarchies, right, where you had your place and your place was what you were born into, whether you were born into a lower class, a middle class, or an upper class, that was it. That's where you were. And there wasn't any moving around in the class system. If you were lower class, you were lower class for life. If you were upper class, you were born into the aristocracy, you were a royal for life. You were always going to be that. This, is, this tends to be how we've, how we've structured our societies. Everything I'm going to tell you or talk about here is going to have an exception somehow, but I believe what I'm saying is the majority position, whether we're dealing with Western European society, African society, Central American society, I mean, all over the world, this is kind of how things developed. But following the Enlightenment, these questions started coming up of, well, wait a minute, hang on, what about individuals? Aren't they important too? Don't they have value? Don't 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 people have something to contribute as individuals? And then maybe we should be thinking about that too. What are the rights of man? Right? I mean, again, lots and lots of thinkers through lots and lots of decades and, and a couple centuries now have been tackling these questions. So in our popular discourse now, you see this come out in shows like this where you see the in, the needs of the individual are outweighing the needs of the group. And from the perspective of the individual, that is sometimes very, very legit. Sometimes you do have to put your own needs ahead of that of the group when the group is demanding things from you that are going to kill you or are going to seriously impact your way of life. And you don't want that. So you're going to push back. And that's the push-pull of the individual versus the, the society or the group. And um, that wasn't always an option, you see. And this is just one way of looking at it. I know there are other ways of talking about this, but I'm just sort of proposing, think about it this way, right? After centuries and centuries of you will comply, you will conform, you will fit in with your assigned position, now we have a different take. Now we've got a take where your voice has value you have meaning and you can you as an individual can do things outside of what the society or the group dictates you do or be and that we call freedom freedom of thought freedom of belief freedom of action movement this is where human rights natural rights developed from is this whole idea of the conflict between what are my obligations and responsibilities to the group versus to myself as a living entity, you know, life unit? What, what do I owe to myself? What do I owe to the group? How do I work this out? And so I think, I agree with you that I think it's taken to a bit of an extreme when the hero of the story is contemplating, you know, that one life is, this, is as sacred as the whole planet 
clearly somebody's, you know, got their priorities a little twisted up there because the math on that doesn't work out at all in any way. But it's following on this heels of this this sort of cultural revolution, you could say, that's been going that's been hundreds of years in the in the process of going um, uh, of this of this post enlightenment sort of think right, and it's very very interesting how you can see in the nineteenth and and or sorry in the twentieth century how you started seeing pushback after the world wars and stuff. This is what postmodernism is all about: is pushing back on this. And um, and anyway, there's more to it than that. Just it's not postmodernism isn't just about the individual versus the group. It's it's about other things actually, kind of. But I'm bringing it in because there has been intellectuals pushing back on this, on this enlight on the enlightenment values, and that's and that's uh, now a serious bone of contention in philosophy and academia and stuff is the whole postmodernism versus modernism and enlightenment values. And this is where we get, you know, true or what is it? The, um, the uh, uh, original um, uh, liberalism um, is being talked about now. Like, I, I'm tra- traditional, I'm a traditional liberalist or something um, versus, you know, your, your uh, more progressive values that people have right now, which might be focused a little too much on the individual and not enough on the group in some ways. Um, but at the same time, uh, with the, um, there's another way of looking at the, um, the effort to silence individuals, as you mentioned in your question, where we see these attempts to ban speakers and stuff like that, is, is really not fighting for the rights of the individual. It's really pushing back against an individual. It's just an individual they don't like. So in a way, it's really more group think. Like I said, this gets complicated. There's lots of ways of looking at it. You know what I mean? It's just like, ah, philosophy, damn it. It gives me, this is why people get headaches starting to think about this stuff is it's, it's complicated, you know? So I don't know. I'm, I can just give some commentary here kind of off the cuff about this. I'm really just sort of talking, uh, you know, talking out my ass about it. But I think that, um, I think that the individual is important, and I think that the recognition of individual rights and human rights is a, is a very important concept that we need to hold on to because it's the basis of our entire Western society at this point, and we've achieved great things on this, uh, on this philosophical platform. But we can take individuality too far, and I think that American society in a way kind of has in that, it, you know, everybody's got a voice and everybody's voice is equal and everybody has a say and we should listen to all of them. And then you find out after a while, maybe not. <laughs> Some of these uninformed, uneducated, very uh, wild opinions and ideas, conspiracy theories, anti-vax ideas, anti, you know, all this kind of stuff. These are not helpful individual ideas. These are these are things that are rubbing the group the wrong way because it has to do with the survival of the group, the very literal life and death of the individuals and the group itself. So, so you know, so individualism can be overrated too, right? And this is where we have to find that balance. This is what the struggle between the left and the right and conservative and liberal. This is what it's all about. This is what cults are all about: is trying to where do we draw that line? Well, clearly, cults have drawn it way too far over to the extreme end where the group is all and the individual is nothing. But we can also go the opposite direction, say the individual is all and the group is nothing. 
and have utter chaos and anarchy. And that's not really great either. So where do we draw lines? That's what the debates are all about. So anyway, I guess that's my commentary on that question. However, whatever use it might have for, for y'all. And there you go. Jonathan Perry. Hey, Chris, I was watching an Aaron Smith Levin video and it got me thinking, who gets to audit Miscavige? Does he audit himself? If someone audited him, I feel like immediately they would have to be sent away somewhere to not let out what he said. The darker implications are that if he's going completely insane, he could convince himself of anything sitting on that machine for hours at a time. How many people do you think have seen his case file? I thought Scientology doesn't work that well if you don't have somebody guiding you through it. How is he getting around this other than just being brutal? All right, Jonathan, thank you for this question. This is one of the the, the questions I get asked frequently, actually. And um, I, I, I got to say, I don't know where David Miscavige is at on the bridge or what his auditing schedule is. How would I possibly know that, right? No, Nobody really does. But it doesn't seem, from all the information that we have, that he's even getting auditing. I mean, the last time that we know for sure he went in session was in the 1990s. That's over 20 years ago. I mean, I, and there's no indication that he is doing Scientology, going up the bridge, talking about the bridge himself or his personal gains with it. And this is one of the reasons why I don't think the guy is really much of a Scientologist or even thinks about himself that way. Because what is one of the most prominent characteristics of a Scientologist is they talk endlessly about where they're at on the bridge and their desire to go up the bridge and be on the bridge and move up the bridge and be, attain total spiritual freedom and personal immortality. So if David Miscavige is OT8 and he's topped the bridge, you'd think he would be talking about that. And if he wasn't up yet through OT8, you'd think he'd be talking about that in some fashion or another, encouraging his you know, followers to get going up the bridge. I'm going up the bridge, lead by example, that kind of thing. But David Miscavige doesn't know how to lead by example because he's a horrible example of almost everything he does. He fails miserably at almost everything he does. So, you know, not much of a leader, not much of an ability to lead by example, really. Uh, so he has to put on a show, and that show is always very carefully staged and crafted. But on a long term, you kind of see that that his personal experience with Scientology is no part of that show. He never talks about himself that way or talks about his own wins or gains in Scientology, ever. I don't recall one time ever seeing him talk about himself as a Scientologist. He's always talking about Scientology as a movement, as the most dynamic, lively, you know, growing uh, religious movement on the planet, blah, 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 about their religious crusade, nothing about himself. And that's kind of interesting because, of course, you'd think he would love to talk about himself, but not as a Scientologist. It's actually one of the biggest things omitted in his repertoire of things he talks about. So it's uh, this is this is the the one of the one of the main reasons, and in addition to other reasons I've already talked about over the years, this is one of the reasons why I don't think he really thinks about himself as a Scientologist and doesn't put any importance on actually doing Scientology. I think he knows very thoroughly. I think he knows and understands that it is a con, and he has no interest in going up the bridge or promoting you know, uh, his own wins or gains as a Scientologist because he doesn't have any. 
you know, and that's that's how I think of uh, David Miscavige with this. As far as anybody who's going to audit him, well, clearly he would pick that person and clearly he would pick them on the basis that they're not going to tattle or blab about the auditing. No auditor is supposed to. You're not supposed to talk about that stuff out of session. And it's supposed to be confidential. And clearly at the level of David Miscavige, people would take that kind of thing pretty seriously. Um, so I don't think that would particularly be the problem is that he'd be worried about people blabbing. I mean, of course, when he was being sex checked by, um, Jesse Prince in the 1980s, that information was being reported to Hubbard. So maybe that gave Miscavige the idea that he shouldn't go in the chair and be audited by anybody. And, you know, if it was only a few years later when he had his last session in the 1992, I think, then maybe he just did write it all off and say, I don't think I want anybody looking at this or thinking about me that way or thinking I even have any personal problems or spiritual issues to deal with. I mean, he, he might even have gone that path. There's a lot of possible scenarios here. I'm just throwing it, you know, throwing things out there. I don't know what the true situation with David Miscavige's auditing is, but I do know that he demonstrates through his actions and through his words that he it has no interest in talking about his own progress. And I think that is one of the biggest red flags connected with him. Because even Hubbard talked about his own auditing and his own progress in auditing. And Miscavige never does. So interesting sign of something. What that something is, who knows. But at the end of the day, it's all just a money-making scam. Let's always keep that in mind. And Miscavige's personal ideas or beliefs about that scam actually are pretty irrelevant in the big picture. It's interesting, but it's minutia. David Miscavige's, um, you know, bridge progress has no bearing whatsoever on why Scientology is the way that it is or why he does what he does. So there you go. All right, let's do some flash answers. Steve Wood. There must have been several high-ranking Scientologists who were aware of the events surrounding the death of Hubbard. Everybody that was involved in perpetuating this made-up story must have known and were aware of the real circumstances. They know Scientology could not save Ron Hubbard. I can't believe that every single person that was involved in the inner circle believed that story. So my question to you is, how did they reconcile this convenient story that was perpetrated on the rank and file? And who exactly were those people as they knew the truth? Who came up with that incredulous story because they must have known it was a lie, and as I recall, the lawyer wasn't even a Scientologist, I believe. All right, Steve. Well, here's the thing. There are a very small handful of people who actually know anything about the truth of L. Ron Hubbard's death. It was not a, it was not a small circle of people. It was a couple people. I mean, it was tiny. There were not a lot of people who really knew. David Miscavige would have been one of them. I think Sarge uh, was another one, Sarge Fouth, and, um, of course, the brokers, uh, Pat and Annie Broker. And um, you'll notice, and then Earl Cooley is the lawyer you're referring to. So that was it. That was, those were the people who were around who knew, uh, who credibly could have the actual knowledge about what went down. Maybe one or two other people whose names I don't know or would only conjecture at. So um, Pat is in hiding from the church. Annie's dead. Earl Cooley's dead. David Miscavige sure isn't saying anything. And Sarge Fouth is dead. So who really knows what went down? 
two people who are alive right now. That's it. They could spin any story they wanted to. David Miscavige did spin a story and got everybody else to go along with it or convince them that it was the story and people went along with it because they had a motivated reason to believe that story was true. And so they moved forward with that story and they held an event and told everybody that story and that was the story that stuck. And um, it was really only because Marty Rathbun managed to talk to Steve Fouth and get his testimony and put it in the book that we have any idea otherwise. So, you know, good on Marty for when he was out and about and writing his books and stuff. But um, but th that's it. That's all we've got. So that's the entirety of what I can tell you about that. And um, there you go. Rob Kupitz. When Miscavige says, we are the fastest growing religion or something similar, do you think he really believes that? Are the people under him feeding him false stats to stay in his good graces? Or do the lower levels bump up the numbers they give to middle management? Okay, thanks for this question, Rob. Um, no, I, as I said earlier in the show here, I don't think David Miscavige actually believes any of this nonsense. He has 100% full access to every single statistic on the planet as far as Scientology goes. He can look up how many people walked into Keokuk Org last week and get a valid, legit number from a graph, right, as reported. Are the people at the lower levels false reporting their statistics? From time to time, they do, yeah, and there are ways of finding that out or cross-referencing and cross-checking things that tend to show up false statistics, um, and it's the job of upper and middle management to root those out and, and get those corrected, and we did that lots of times. So, um, yes, sometimes people throw up false statistics in order to get senior executives to hear what they want to hear rather than the truth, but... Um, Overall, the statistics are more accurate than not. I say that from years of collecting and, and graphing them. And um, and David Miscavige has full access to that. So, um, yeah, so there you go. I, I don't think he believes that Scientology is the fastest growing religion on the planet. In fact, I, I know he knows that that's bullshit. Uh, there's no way he couldn't. But as far as the rest of it goes, um, yeah, there you go. Idria Vici Haloub. Knowing David Miscavige's paranoia, do you think he has been vaccinated for COVID-19? What about Shelley? Yes, I think David Miscavige has been vaccinated. I have no idea what about the situation with Shelley is, so I'm not even going to conjecture. All right. So that is our show for this week. Thanks for uh, all the questions you guys sent in. I really, really love getting them. And please do send me more at askchrisshelton at gmail.com, and I'll be happy to add them to the queue. All right. I will see you guys next week. I hope that you found this show entertaining, informative, and educational. That is my goal, and I hope I'm accomplishing it. All right, guys. See you soon. Bye-bye.